0: All right, so uh, grab a Bible or a Bible app if you've got one on your phone. And uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12 today. So Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. And uh, as you're heading there, I'll just kind of give you a little bit of context for what we're doing today. So we said this before, but kind of a, a way to think about the letter to the Hebrews is that the author is exhorting Christians. And we talked about what exhortation means, uh, encouragements and and warnings and all these different aspects go into exhortation. Sometimes it includes correction and rebuke, as we've seen in the letter. But a lot of times it's pastoral in nature, whether it's rebuke or whether it's encouragement. But he's exhorting Christians by exalting Christ. And that's this whole Jesus is better, Jesus is superior theme. Uh, At the beginning of chapter five, if you all remember from a couple weeks ago, the author exalted Christ over and above, as superior to the Aaronic priests, the the priests in the line of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. And he pointed out in just those first couple uh, uh, verses we looked at, starting in chapter 5, 1 through 10, how Jesus is better than the Aaronic priests. Now, he's going to get into much more specificity on that in chapters uh, 7, 8, 9, and the first half of 10. But he started and then he sort of, I wouldn't call it an interruption, but he moves into a section of exhortation right after those first 10 verses on the priesthood. And that's what we've been in for the last couple weeks. And, uh, and he has a really, uh, a strong mix of both pastoral encouragement on the one hand, as well as stern warnings on the other hand. And last week's passage, uh, was the sternest warning in the entire letter. And it's one of the most difficult In in terms of interpretation, it's one of the most difficult passages in the letter uh, that we looked at last week. But this is refreshing. Today we're going to turn to a much more uh, positive, uplifting section of encouragement before he transitions into something else next week. So even though the author felt compelled, again, he has a pastoral heart. He felt compelled to offer that stern warning against falling away from Christ that we looked at last week. But he is nevertheless, and we'll see that today in our passage, he is nevertheless completely convinced of his readers' uh, Christian identity. He's completely convinced that they're not going to fall away and that, in fact, they're going to go on to be fruitful. Uh, And he had good reason to be convinced of that, as we'll see today. So I want to ask you a question, just by way of introduction to this material. Uh, What if I told you, and a lot of you all have gotten to know me pretty well, what if I told you I was a triathlete? Why do you laugh? Like, I immediately get Trey laughing about it. Come on, man. Give me a little credit. But if I, if I told you I was a triathlete, I'm going to go out to Brandon Bargo's 5K and I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to, I'm numero uno right here. I'll probably fall within like 15 feet and sprain my ankle. Um, that's more likely. But if I told you I was a triathlete and in fact right now I'm training for a full Ironman triathlon, would you be convinced of that? At all, all right. What could convince you of that? I mean, honestly, if you followed me around for the last week and saw what I've eaten, for instance, and how much, you know, walking to eating ratio I've had, it has not been very good. But, but uh, I, I think I've like five times in the last six days I found an excuse to eat dessert. Even Thursday was Earth Day, and so I ate a, a cup of worm dirt. For Earth Day to celebrate, you all know what worm dirt? It's like chocolate pudding and whipped, yeah, crushed Oreos, gummy worms. I mean, it's fantastic stuff. But that's how I celebrate Earth Day. I didn't recycle. I didn't, you know, bring my old batteries to the library. I ate uh, basically chocolate pudding with crushed Oreos in it. That was fantastic. Before you start judging me, though, last week was not a typical week. Okay. Um, But even if you took all of my weeks over the past year and you took the average of my uh, choices that I make, you would ultimately be unconvinced that I was a triathlete training for a triathlon. You would find those claims of athleticism utterly unconvincing. And as Christians, we are claiming so much more than mere physical athleticism. Okay, okay. We are claiming to be the very recipients of God's grace in Jesus Christ, the, the recipients of God's eternal forgiveness for sin, the recipients of, of God's of, of eternal life, of resurrection life in Christ, the recipients of God's indwelling Holy Spirit. This is what we're claiming. But sadly, folks, and I'm, I'm right here with you, it's all too easy to live our Christian lives unconvincingly. But we are called to follow Christ convincingly. And today's passage helps us understand what that looks like. And we're going to see three familiar aspects. If you've ever read any of Paul's letters, uh, you've probably heard these or you've seen them on one of those little things you hang on your wallet, Hobby Lobby. But we're going to look at three familiar aspects of a convincingly Christian life. And that's going to be faith, hope and love. But this morning, we're going to take those in reverse order. Um, the first aspect of a convincingly Christian life is love. Look with me at our first two verses, verses 9 and 10. He says, by the way, it's no coincidence that he leads off with the only time in the entire letter he uses this really strong word, beloved. These dear, cherished friends, right after this really stern warning in the previous verses. He says in verse 9, but beloved, beloved. We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Again, referring back to that really stern warning. And then, verse 10 For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So, before we get into this, I just want to point out that as Christians, Please don't mishear me here. We are expected to love our unbelieving neighbors, even our enemies. Now, I'm not contradicting that at all today, but we can't make the mistake, and it is easy to make, of focusing on our love for those outside the church to the exclusion of other Christians. We can't blur those things, okay? Today's passage is a good reminder that whoever else we are called to love in this life, we are also specifically called to love one another in the church. In John chapter 13, the upper room discourse, Jesus tells his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He's speaking to his disciples, that one another, that, that, that's, that's uh, uh, his disciples loving one another, including us. In fact, it was this very sort of one another love that convinces the author of Hebrews that the faith of his readers was genuine. He sees in their life. He calls it work. He saw their work, it says, how they ministered to one one another's needs in the past and how they continued to minister to one another's needs even in their present difficult circumstances. And folks, it was not easy to make sacrifices uh, for your brothers and sisters in Christ because you were already sacrificing so much just to be a follower of Jesus in the first place, okay? It wasn't easy. And he ultimately attributes this love Of one another, for one another, to their love for God's name. Now, this is a really cool connection here. In other words, their desire was ultimately to bring God glory by the way that they loved one another in God's family, in God's household. Loving God, loving one another, they, those get drawn together here, and that's really important to see. So when we sacrificially love one another in the church for God's glory, don't ever forget that that's why we're doing it ultimately. For God's glory, it will be noticed by others, and it will certainly be noticed by God. And that's his point. The author writes, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. Therefore, the author is convinced that these Hebrew Christians will experience what he calls things that accompany salvation. In verses seven and eight, the ones we looked at last week, where he uses um, the agricultural analogy, to the the soil that's given everything it needs to be fruitful and there's two different results from the soil there's fruitfulness and there's barrenness and so uh if you look back at seven and eight you get you get kind of these two results the fruitfulness remember this it was ultimately rewarded by God with God's blessing but the barren soil the fruitless soil faced God's harsh judgment that was part of the the harshness of that warning we looked at last week but Based on the fruit of love that that this author is seeing in the lives of his readers in this church that he's writing to, based on that fruit, that spiritual fruit of love, the author was absolutely convinced that they fell into the former category of the fruitful soil, that they would ultimately be recipients of God's blessing and of God's rewards at the end of this life. He was completely convinced of that. So the first aspect of a convincingly Christian life is simply love for one another that glorifies God. Uh, I like the way John Calvin draws this meaning out. Uh, he was a 16th century theologian, but he, uh, I love the breeze, man. And these are, there were not brads in this folder. So if you see like, then I'm just going to spitball it. It's going to be great. I'll probably drift into all sorts of heresy if I just start spitballing it on this. Um, So John Calvin draws this out. He's actually looking at the same verse that we're looking at today in verse 10. And he writes this. He says, we are not to spare ourselves from labor if we want to do our duty to our neighbors. In this context, it's our, our Christian brothers and sisters. Okay, so we're not to spare ourselves from labor if we want to do our duty to our neighbors. We are not to help them financially only. But with advice, and by our efforts and in all kinds of ways, we must show great zeal and put up with many annoyances and sometimes undergo many hazards. Whoever wants to engage in the tasks of loving must be prepared for a laborious way of life. You know what he's saying there? It's, it's not easy to love. Love doesn't. It, it's it, it, it's uh, costly. It's costly it takes sacrifice. In other words, loving one another is going to require us to see ourselves as living sacrifices, just like Paul talks about in Romans 10. It's not going to be easy. It is going to come with all sorts of hazards and and annoyances and all sorts of things like this. I won't say anything about parenting. Sorry, my kids are right there, so I can't. Uh, But you know, and it's not just parenting, it's marriage, it's friends, it's being in a family with brothers and 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 extended family and, and people at work and, and just in the church in general. We have different personalities, different perspectives. And we bump into each other and it's going to take a lot of sacrifice for us to love each other the way that they're talking about here. And we, we don't always receive an earthly reward for loving one another well. Sometimes we only get ingratitude. You know, it, we're, we're, not, we're not doing it for an earthly reward. We're not doing it so somebody recognizes it and says hey, you, you were really great at loving that person, or hey, you're really great at loving me. Thank you. And you get a handwritten note. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. It, sometimes it happens, but that's, if it doesn't happen, it's still okay. Because it, ultimately, we know that God sees it, that it means something to God, that it's valuable in his eyes, okay? So if we're going to live a convincingly Christian life of love, then we must remember two things from today's passage. First... We shouldn't expect to be rewarded for our love in this life. That doesn't mean you need to just... Like when you see somebody love you well, you don't say thank you, okay? It's just that's not... If it doesn't happen, it's not going to crush us because we know that that's not the point. We ought to expect to be rewarded, however, in the life to come. Don't expect to get your reward now, but do expect to be rewarded in the life to come. Second... Our love for one another, regardless of how it's received at a human level, will always be received well by God if it is done for the good of others and for His glory. Can I say that again? Bless you. If we love others for their good and for God's glory, it will be noticed by God, even if nobody else notices, takes notice. So when we love like this, we will live convincingly Christian lives. Uh, Later on in Hebrews 10, we actually get a glimpse of what this uh, love looked like among these original recipients in the first century, these Hebrew Christians. Listen to Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. It says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. After you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you faced a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle Through reproaches and tribulations, they're being mocked, they're being uh, attacked for their faith, etc. And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Coming alongside others in the faith who are being treated like that and taking that same abuse on yourself uh, alongside them. And then in verse 34, it says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. And we're going to talk a lot about that better possession, that lasting one, as we move through the rest of Hebrews. But this is just a glimpse. I mean, they were getting arrested, uh, just like Paul and and Timothy and his crew would get arrested in different places. They were ministering to those people who were being arrested uh, uh, having their property seized and taken away from them, losing their inheritance from their Jewish family that, that uh, rejected them because they came to faith in Christ. So in the middle of having to endure this great conflict of sufferings, these Christian men and women made these great sacrifices to come alongside their suffering brothers and sisters in, in the church. They, they shared in their sufferings. Did you see that word? They became sharers with them in it. They were even willing, like I said, to have their property confiscated because they were looking forward to the eternal rewards of of living a convincingly Christian life of love for one another, regardless of the cost in this life. They were looking forward to that much greater hope that we have to look forward to. So how do we apply this in our situation? I don't know anybody at our church that's been thrown in jail for their faith. I don't know anybody in our church who's had their property confiscated for their faith, at least in our culture in this historical point in time. So how do we apply this? We're not facing the same persecutions, but we all face difficult situations and we all experience various kinds of suffering. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, we're not an amen church, but you can amen that, right? We're all facing different types of suffering and hardships and difficulties here at Wayside, we have all sorts of needs in our church. We have, um, uh, we have physical needs uh, with regard to health or just physical things like moving furniture or something. We've got financial needs. Uh, others have emotional or relational needs. We've got all sorts of things going on in the world of relationships and just emotionally and, and psychologically. And all of us have spiritual needs. We all need people to come alongside us spiritually and help us grow in our faith. So to apply this part of our passage, I would just simply ask every single one of you this week to pray for one concrete way to love one another here at Wayside, to love another Waysider in our local church, whether that's a child, your child, whether that's a spouse, your spouse, whether it's a good friend or whether it's someone you don't even hardly know yet who's a part of our church family. And this could be as simple as a well-timed word of encouragement. I mean, that when I get an email or a note or something from somebody that just is encouraging, that blesses my soul. I mean, y'all know how that is. You've, you've maybe gotten words of encouragement before. I'm not a, I'm not a words guy. If you want to talk like love language stuff like that's I'm not like the words guy but man, it feels good. It just blesses your soul to hear those words of encouragement from people, you know? So so it might just be a well-timed word of encouragement or just offering a simple prayer for perseverance on their behalf, even if they never even know you're praying for them. Like I said, that still has value because it's being done under the sovereignty of God, under his sovereign watch, since he appreciates it, he values it. Like, we don't realize how important that is just to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Whatever you do, Folks, do it with this heart. Do it for the good of others and ultimately do it for God's glory, okay? And don't worry about your return on investment in this life. You may not get a very good ROI on those, those prayers and those words and those actions in this life, but you will in the life to come, I promise. Uh, a scholar named uh, Bruce, F.F. Bruce, he explained that the point of this passage that we're looking at so far is that deeds of kindness done to the people of God are reckoned by God as done to Himself and will surely receive their reward from Him. Do you remember when Saul was persecuting the church? you remember what Jesus said when He showed up? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you know what happens when you love brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you know ultimately that is rendered, that is seen as an act of love towards God, towards Jesus Christ himself. Isn't that beautiful? Keep that in mind. So love is required for a convincingly Christian life, but it's not the only thing we need. So let's move on to the second half of our verse. The other two aspects of a convincingly Christian life are hope and faith. So crucial to a convincingly Christian life. And I want to take these together because they show up in verses 11 and 12. And verses 11 and 12 in, in the Greek is just one big sentence. So there's a lot of interrelated aspects. So we're going to take those pretty much together here in verses 11 and 12. So let's look at those final two verses. Starting verse 11, it says, And we desire that each one of you, and I love how he particularizes it. He doesn't say, oh, y'all. He says, and we desire, we are passionate about each one of you showing the same diligence So as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish or lazy, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. The author wants each one of his readers to demonstrate diligent action, and this involves earnestness, being earnest about something, Eagerness, being eager towards something, and devotion to the task at hand. Earnestness, eagerness, devotion to the task. This is this diligent action that he calls them to. He wants them to keep on being diligent by continuing to be as earnest in the future as they had already proven to be in the past and in the present, particularly with their love for one another. He challenges them to remain on this path of spiritual fruitfulness Because they've been fruitful, but he wants them to continue being more and more fruitful until the end, until the end of their life or until Jesus comes back. In doing so, he was convinced that they would realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And this isn't just talking about a subjective feeling of hopefulness. Now, is it good to have a subjective feeling of hopefulness, just being hopeful? Yes, that's a good thing. And that's involved in this. But he wanted them to direct their energies and their efforts towards the complete and final possession of what they had every reason to hope for. Now, that's a different sort of thing than just a fuzzy sort of sense of hopefulness, a subjective feeling. Okay, that is an objective reality that you're reaching out towards and grabbing a hold of. Okay? He wanted them to keep moving forward in their faith with patience and perseverance waiting expectantly for what he calls the better things that will accompany their future salvation when they're glorified with Christ in his kingdom. When we share in the glory of Christ, theologically it's called being glorified. We're we're justified, we're sanctified in this life, through this life. And then one day we will be glorified. We will enter into that inheritance, that rest that we talked about back in chapters 3 and 4. We will enter into that reward in Christ's kingdom. That was quick. Yes, thank you. And luckily, I was smart enough to actually handwrite the page numbers. So, hey, hey now. All right. So, um, so he wants them to keep moving forward. The author knew that the greatest obstacle to living such a life as we're talking about, a convincingly Christian life of hope, would be what? What's the greatest obstacle to living a convincingly Christian life of hope and faith? Sluggishness. That, that, that Greek term can also be translated laziness, okay? Uh, it's, it's mentioned in verse 12, uh, and you might remember it. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but it's, it's a bookend of this whole warning section. So go back to chapter 5, verse 11, that same word that gets translated dull or slow or lazy in, in 5.11. That's the same word here. So it bookends this whole exhortation section, Okay. But back then in chapter 5, verse 11, the author had explained that his readers were dull of hearing. He's talking about their ability to understand the deeper truths of the Christian faith because he's about to tell them about Melchizedek and about the the, the priesthood of Jesus Christ and how it's superior to the Levitical priesthood and all these things. And he's saying, but you've you've become dull of hearing. You've become slow of hearing. They had already become that, slow to understand the deeper truths. But here he uses it a little bit differently. But again, you've got to see the... The literary genius of of Hebrews is just so great. I mean, I'm just in awe of it every time I jump into these passages. But now he's going to put a little twist on it. And instead of saying you've already become slow or dull or lazy or sluggish, now he's going to warn to stay spiritually diligent so that they wouldn't become spiritually lazy. So that was about their learning and their slowness to understand back in five. Now this is about don't allow yourself to become sluggish in your actions in your love for one another, your love for others. And I like how one scholar put it. He says, A lively hope is the basis for effective Christian living in every context. Those who have this motivation will not be overwhelmed by sluggishness. Guys, if we can keep hold of our hope in Christ, not just as a subjective feeling, but as an objective reality that we cling to through faith in Jesus Christ, then we will not be overcome by sluggishness. Okay? For a Christian to become spiritually lazy is to lose one's saltiness. It's to put one's light under the proverbial basket. In fact, if you want to live the exact opposite, if that's just your hankering and you're like, I want to live the exact opposite of a convincingly Christian life, then I would just tell you to simply just be spiritually lazy. And you will look just like the world. You will look so indistinguishable, that nobody will assume you're a Christian unless they just attribute Christianity to spiritual laziness based on their upbringing or their experiences or their own life. But if you want to live the exact opposite of of a convincingly Christian life, that's how to do it. Just embrace that spiritual laziness. That's true of all of us. Eventually, it will erode or at the very least, it will obscure your hope and your faith in Christ. And will wonder, why why do I feel so hopeless? Why do I feel like my faith is so fragile? Well, therefore the author exhorts his readers to become, and he quote, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Paul talks about this a lot, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. Become imitators of those who have already proven to to have taken hold of that hope and faith. And he's probably here referring to Old Testament saints like Abraham. In fact, we're going to meet him and all these other uh, Old Testament saints in, in the you know, what's called the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to see these people that he calls them to be imitators of. In fact, he's going to transition next week into the story of Abraham to show how he did this and how we can become imitators of him, who, who by faith and perseverance and, and, and holding on to that hope inherit the promises of God. These are men and women who they are not perfect by any means. And please, when we get to chapter 11, don't go, oh, man, these people are amazing and they're perfect. They've never messed up. No. But looking back through the lens of the New Testament, looking back in the old, God sort of forgets, if you want to call it that, all their shortcomings. And he, he focuses on their faith and their perseverance. So we're going to meet uh, Abraham next time. But, but nevertheless, these folks, they patiently persevered in this life, looking forward to the promise of better things associated with their salvation and the life to come. Again, we live in the present, but, but we're, we're clinging on to a hope that is future oriented. A salvation that is both past, present and future. Okay. As a result, they, they lived lives of faith and hope that were both convincing and contagious and worthy of imitation, and we're called to live those lives as well. The hope and faith that we read about in these verses is characteristic of a convincingly Christian life. Uh, in an article encouraging, so John Piper, I don't know what you think about him, but um, I read some of his books when I was at seminary. I like a lot of what he says. But uh, one of the things I really appreciate about him is he is he he loves um, Christian biographies. And he's always encouraging people to read Christian biographies for this very purpose so that we can become imitators of those who have gone before us in the faith. And so he he recommends this in an article uh basically called, I think it's called like brothers read, he's talking to pastors, he's saying brothers read, read Christian biographies but this is what he writes, he's talking about the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, he says Hebrews 11 is a divine mandate to read Christian biography, the unmistakable implication of the chapter is that if we hear about the faith of our forefathers and mothers, we will lay aside every weight and sin and run with perseverance the race that is set before us Hebrews 12.1. If we ask the author, how shall we stir one another up to love and good works? Chapter 10, verse 24. His answer would be through encouragement from the living. Chapter 10, verse 25. And the dead. Chapter 11. Christian biography is the means by which body life cuts across the generations. I love that. Christian biography is the means by which body life cuts across the generations. I think it's beautiful. So recently, I um, I went on, I think Stacy was out of town, I was looking for something to watch. And so I got on Amazon Prime and Netflix, and they've got really good Christian biographies on Amazon, and some of them are free, on Amazon Prime and Netflix. And, uh, and I've also read several biographies of these, these spiritually diligent Christians, such as Martin Luther. I got to read a great, I think Metaxas uh, wrote uh, the Martin Luther biography. It's fantastic. Um, Jonathan Edwards I read a great uh, biography of him and then also uh, Adoniram Jetson who wasn't the first Christian to Burma but was one of the first and really established uh, a Christian mission in Burma Uh, and, and he also translated the Bible into Burmese so these are these spiritually diligent Christians and it really did bless me to read their stories and read about all these sacrifices but ultimately God's faithfulness and God's goodness in their lives um, in fact, the way that, that uh, Adoniram Judson, so it's a Buddhist country, it was a Buddhist country, and they would walk past this little house he owned to go to the Buddhist shrine to, to worship along the way to the shrines. And he set up a wayside tea house, basically, to sit and have spiritual conversations with people on their pilgrimage to the Buddhist shrines. And he had this little wayside, uh, he was just shedding the light of the gospel right there on the way to the shrines in Burma. And that was actually one of the, the um, stories, and I read that one when I was in seminary, but that was one of the inspirations for the Wayside Moon Tower vision. This idea of having these congregations, these communities of Christians in various neighborhoods, various uh, languages and, and socioeconomic contexts and, and uh, racial and ethnic contexts, sharing or reflecting the light of God's glory and the the grace of God in Jesus Christ into these areas. That was Adoniram Judson, one of those inspirations. So anyway, as we explore the convincingly Christian lives of men and women who have gone before us, we will be much more likely to imitate their faith and hope in Christ, which was at the heart of their spiritual diligence and their patient perseverance. There's even kids' books now that are fantastic about these, these Christian uh, leaders and minis- uh, missionaries and martyrs that you can get and just read to your kids. They're great. So by imitating the faith and hope of others, our ultimate goal is to become more and more like Christ. Okay, we're... Yes, do I want to become more and more like Adoniram Judson in, in his desire to share the gospel with people that don't know Jesus? Yes. But ultimately. By becoming more and more like him in that way, I'm becoming more and more like Christ. That's our ultimate goal. And as we will explore in depth later on in Hebrews, Jesus persevered perfectly because of his love for God and his love for us. And because of his faith and his hope in God's promises. An unshakable faith, an unshakable hope. And the same Holy Spirit, get this, here's a mind-blowing reality. The same Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ depended upon in his earthly ministry, is the same Holy Spirit, folks, that is indwelling each one of us and all of us to empower us for Christ-like Christian ministry. So how can you take this home, bring this home this week? How can you reveal your faith and hope in Christ in convincing ways this next week? What, What current circumstances are going to require dependence upon the Spirit for patient perseverance? We all have those, right? And maybe it's challenges at work or challenges in marriage or other relational challenges. Whatever you are facing, my desire, just like the author of the Hebrews, is that each and every single one of you would, would be able to demonstrate the same eagerness for the fulfillment of your hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and perseverance inherit the promises. I'll close with a quote from uh, one such person whose life was worthy of imitation. One of the biographical movies I watched a few months ago was on a a gentleman by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer, a lot of y'all probably heard of him. There's also a great, I think Metaxas also did a great biography of Bonhoeffer, but uh, he was a German pastor and theologian during the rise of Hitler and the Nazi party in Germany. And uh, he actually escaped and went to New York. But then he felt that God wanted him in Germany during the rise of the Nazi regime. And so he went back and eventually he was arrested by the SS uh, and ultimately was put to death uh, with some others uh, for his Christian faith. Um, but it's interesting when you know the, the background, you, you hear quotes, you know, you see the Google images and you saw these little fun quotes with fun backgrounds and stuff. But when you know a little bit about his life, uh, he was clearly convinced of better things clearly he was looking forward to something else all right that wasn't going to be found in this life okay uh that accompanies salvation so he willingly sacrifices his life for his faith and hope in jesus christ so i think that that aspect of his life lends credence to his words when he writes this listen to these words your life as a christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in god Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Think about those words this week as you prayerfully consider how you can depend on God to live a convincingly Christian life characterized by love and hope and faith in Christ. Uh, Next week, the author is going to give us a great example, as I mentioned, of someone who had a life worth imitating as he patiently waited on the fulfillment of God's promises. So next week, we're going to look at the life of Abraham. Uh, Please bow your heads with me. I'll pray.